0: James uh, chapter 3, these words of um, wisdom really that James speaks, he, he, very similar here in this New Testament um, epistle to what can be found in what's considered the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, pearls of, of insight, uh, pearls of, of wisdom that speak into our lives and the challenges in the way that we live our lives. And uh, that's what James talks about here. These words are going to be familiar to many of you uh, because he talks about the tongue and the power of our words. So we're going to begin at at chapter 3, James chapter 3, verse 1. This is what he writes Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect able to keep their whole body in check. Now, if let's pause there for a moment. If you are perfect, you can just tune out for the rest of the sermon. The rest of us probably want to listen from here. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder. "...wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell." Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Brothers and sisters, we pray, hear God's blessing on the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, that you'd inspire words, words that have been sung in praise, words that we know are inspired, that were read from your scriptures, words that are here spoken, that they'd speak to our hearts. Draw us close to you and closer to the faithfulness and obedience for which we've been called. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. Nigel Hayes. I don't know if that's a name that's familiar to you. Anybody know who Nigel Hayes is? Yeah, yeah you were in the first service. May's back there raising her hand. She already <laughs> heard the sermon. That's cheating. Nigel Hayes is a, well, he was last year a sophomore um, basketball player for the uh, University of Wisconsin, the Badgers, which made their, yeah, woohoo. I see ya Made their run all the way to the NCAA National Championship game. They lost that game. who did they lose that game to? I'm just, I'm trying to remember now. Um, I'll, I'll reflect on that and get back to you. Um, but, but I bring up Nigel Hayes not, not so much because of, of basketball, not, not exactly because of what he did on the court. He was a fantastic player. Uh, but it's what happened, what started to happen after the games during the, the NCAA tournament. If you, you follow basketball at all, after the games are played, the players, both on the winning team and the losing teams, come out, and they sit at the tables in front of press, the press corps, and they are interviewed, and they answer questions. And Nigel and some of his teammates got fascinated by the stenographers that were there, that were taking the transcripts. And anybody done stenography work? Anybody? Okay. Uh, a few, or one or two. Uh, and, and the machine that they use, I'm not familiar with it, so I've, nev- I've never paid attention or seen up close what a, a stenographer machine, whatever it's called. I'm sure it's more proper than that, but whatever it's called. Uh, and so they became fascinated by the work of the stenographers, these women that were employed by the NCAA and that would take down every single thing that they said. So they started to have a little fun during their press conference. And if you, if you, you can go and watch, like, on YouTube some of it, they would start to throw in really big words that really had no place but they were trying to trip up the stenographers. So in one of the interviews, they asked Nigel Hayes a question about the game, and he said, well, wait a minute, before I answer that, I just want to say onomatopoeia, uh, anti-disestablishmentarianism, and cattywampus. And he would just throw these words out, trying to trip up the stenographers. And so it became kind of um, something they were known for. It became kind of fun and lighthearted. Toward the end of the tournament, one, I don't remember after which game it was. It wasn't at the very end. But he came out, and he's sitting there. And the, the host, the one who kind of moderates the questions, uh, knew that this had been going on. So he says to him, he gets a question. He says, is there anything you want to say first? And so Nigel Hayes says some nonsensical word. And when he did, he looked at the stenographer. And it must have been a woman that he had not seen before, that had not done this previously, because it caught his attention. And he leaned into the ear of his teammate sitting next to him, and he said, Gosh, she's beautiful. And he meant that to be a private moment, a whisper into the ear of his teammate. The problem was, there was a microphone right in front of him, and it amplified it, obviously. And the press corps started to giggle under their breath, and he looked startled, and he said, Gosh, did you hear that? And they nodded, and he just buried his head in his hands because it was embarrassing for him. The mic, that amplified whatever he said. Now, in this case, it was fortunate that it wasn't a, a, a mean-spirited, it wasn't an ugly thing. I mean, hopefully it didn't embarrass the, the, the woman who was taking the, the notes and, and didn't make her uncomfortable, but, but it wasn't an ugly thing he said. I I, I'm gonna guess, and, and maybe I'm being short-sighted, but I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm projecting that ladies, you know, somebody calling you beautiful is not really going to offend you, um, you know. But but the point is, he forgot the power of the microphone, and and that happens in life. You, that happens sometimes in humorous ways. Uh, you can go back every president that I went back since Reagan, and I'm sure before that, probably skipping Carter because his moral. Um, his moral compass was, I think, a little straighter than some of the others. But every president had their moments where they forgot the mic was on. And they said something to, a, uh, to an aide, to a dignitary, to somebody that got magnified that they wished hadn't. Newscasters have this happen all the time. Some of them lose their jobs over this. They forget the mics are on. It, it happens in life. And I will tell you that there are no four hours in my week that I am more conscious of what I say than 8.30 to 12.30 on a Sunday because I don't get away from it. And I usually try to turn it off, but it's always there. You never know at what moment the words that you speak are amplified. And the thing about mics is there's no filter. They don't discern good from bad, positive from negative. The microphones here amplify the voices of our talented singers. My microphone amplifies my voice. If I sing into it, not so talented. The point is, it goes. It catches everything. And so I, I started to reflect upon that. I started to reflect upon what James is writing here about the power of our words, about the power of the tongue. And I thought this, a personal challenge, a reflection. I thought, how would my week be different? How would my words be different? How would my speech be different if I had to wear this 24 hours a day? If at every moment of every day, of every conversation, of every word spoken, there was always the potential that the mic could pick it up and amplify what I say. Now the point is nobody wants to live like that. Nobody should. There are conversations we have that are meant to be private and personal with our spouses or with our children or with our, our closest friends. But the exercise of having to think intentionally about the words I speak, having to reflect intentionally, be conscious of the words I speak, how would my life be different if I was that intentional all of the time? Because the fact is, we're not. I'm not, and you're not. We become very careless at times with our words. And I'm going to guess that most of us have had a moment in our life where we have been speaking carelessly, maybe even negatively about a co-worker, a friend, a family member, only to have that terror of feeling their presence in your blind spot or at the table next to you. Send the text that you meant for one person and that momentary panic Did I send that to the wrong audience? Or the email? or You know the examples. We can go on and on about the ways that we can become very careless with our words. James speaks very plainly in the text how dangerous our words can be. He uses imagery of a horse that is controlled by the bit in its mouth, a great ship that's controlled by the rudder, The forest fire that is set by the spark to say that our words, we just don't tame the tongue. I think it's tongue in cheek, if you will, no pun intended, that he says at the beginning, um, you know, if if you are, are never at fault in what you say, then you're perfect. You're able to keep your whole body in check because the reality is there's nobody in his audience and nobody in our audience that has mastered that. I cannot for a minute begin to believe anybody in here has perfectly mastered your speech. It never has those kind of moments. James wants us to think very, very deeply about how devastating they can be, about how, how hurtful that they can be. Here's the thing. I will guess that all of us in here can think of a time, can reflect upon a time, can probably immediately recall a time when we have been wounded by the careless words of another person. That we have been wounded by what somebody has said, whether their intention was to hurt us or not. Probably you can remember that. In fact, most often we can remember that more so than we can the positive things that people say. I, I came across a, a, just a write-up. It was a reflection. I don't know how many of you know who Larry David is. He was the writer and creator of Seinfeld. And some other television shows, and he's kind of famous for being a little neurotic. But uh, his friend was reflecting once that Larry David was at a, a Yankees game, and he's a new, native New Yorker, and they flashed his picture on the jumbotron, and thousands of people, you know, broke into applause. They they were saluting, you know, the, the native son and, and celebrating him. Thousands of people. His friend said later that evening, as he was walking out, leaving the stadium, somebody drove by and they yelled out something. Not so flattering to him. Basically, um, we do not admire your work in the way that everybody else admires your work, except it was in three words, and I'm not going to tell you what they were, but you can guess. And they said that one encounter, that one moment, bothered him the rest of the night. I mean, you think about it. One person said something ugly in the face of thousands who cheered him, and that's what he couldn't let go of. And as silly as that sounds, I'm like that. I'm guilty of that. I can, you know, we can walk out of here today and 99 of you could come up and say the nicest things to me and one of you come up and tell me how much you hated something I did or something I said or something that happened and that's what I'm going to hold on to. Because words have that kind of power. Words can affect us. They can wound us. They They can ruin us if we allow them to. James wants us to take that seriously. He wants us to be mindful of that because here's the other side of that same coin where we have probably experienced that kind of pain. Here's the uncomfortable question. Where have you inflicted it? Where have you and I been guilty of not experiencing that but either intentionally or unintentionally hurting somebody with our words? James wants us to recognize how important it is to to be mindful, to be intentional in many ways, to think about what it would be like if the mic was in front of us all the time. Because words have the power of death. That's a proverb. I said he, he reflects and he mimics the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Proverbs 18, 6. Words have the power of death. We need to take that seriously. I need to take that seriously and to think through it. And that's the bulk of what James talks about. But there's a positive side of this coin. There is a the rest of the story if you will, and it doesn't get a lot of focus here in Proverbs chapter 3, but at the very end of what I read, James says, with our tongue, he says we both praise the Lord and we curse those who are created in the image of God. He says, with our tongue comes both words of praise and cursing. That should not be. And he uses this image. He says, can both fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? Can both fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? And he is using imagery that his listener would get, that we get. And that is this, that that salt water largely, and I'm being general here, uh, is not an effective means of growth and health and development. And and what I mean is when you're thirsty, you do not grab a, a glass of salt water. When you're watering your plants, you do not pour salt water in. You don't put that in your your pet's bowl. Salt water, with the exception of the right circumstances, does not bring life. In fact, talking about salt water would have conjured up an image for the listener of, of, of the day. There is a huge body of water in Israel that is the highest concentration of salt water for any sea, on the face of the earth. Do you know what it's called? The Dead Sea. Because everything in it is dead. I mean, other than the microorganisms, there's no life in it. It is eerie. Anybody been to the Dead Sea? All right. It is eerie to be at the Dead Sea. It's, it's wonderful, but it's, it's weird being, at least it was for me, being in a body of water where I knew there was nothing swimming around. And you float on the Dead Sea. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful place to go if you ever get a chance. But it's in the middle of the desert. You know, as we said when I went years ago, rocks and dirt, rocks and dirt. And that's what they would have thought of, the Dead Sea, salt water, which has the effect of, of death. And That's what he's saying. Our words can have that effect. But then the flip side is the fresh water. Now, the second body of water they would have identified with, which you probably are aware of if you've read the stories in the Gospels, The Sea of Galilee, which is a lake, big lake, fresh water. It brought life. It sustained life, the the communities around Galilee. It it had the same effect that fresh water has on plants and animals in each of us. It affirms. It refreshes. It nourishes. And Jesus, I mean, James is saying that out of our mouth, we have to be mindful of the devastation that we can cause. But our words can also bring life. Our words can affirm, can bless, can nourish the soul of another person. And so often we focus so much on not saying the wrong things, the ugly things, the bad things, as we should, that we forget that equally important is our intentionality of saying the good things, the affirming things, the loving things, the kind things. We need to be springs of fresh water. We need to bring life. And we have that opportunity through the presence of the Holy Spirit to do that. I read a a short, I I don't want to call it a biography, but it was a a capsule of the life of of Benjamin West. Benjamin West was a painter, uh, an artist in the Civil War era, did a lot of historical, I'm sorry, the uh, Revolutionary War era. And he did a lot of historical um, portraits and things. Well, he talked about that when he was a little boy, he wanted to be an artist. So one day his mom was out, and he got into the oils and the paints, and he decided to paint a picture of his sister. And he made a royal mess of it. It was a disaster. The way that can happen when small children get into paints and crayons and other markers and things, that's what it was. And his mom came home to this mess and to this indecipherable artwork and she saw the work of her little boy and he said she walked over and she looked at him and said what a beautiful picture and she gave him a kiss and Benjamin says with that kiss I became an artist with that kiss I became an artist because somebody his mother in this case spoke life into his life in the face of the mess spoke Life. We have that opportunity because that impacts, that changes the destiny of people. Some of us have had our lives changed radically by parents or teachers or family members or Sunday school and and church friends, whoever it is that spoke life into the mess of our lives. You know, I, I get notes and cards all the time in the church office, and sometimes the notes and cards I get are, are criticism, and I'm not above criticism, and I read those. I don't like them, but I understand sometimes I need course correction too, and so I get those cards, and I'll read them, and I reflect, and try to, try to handle them in a mature way, and pray over them, and think, is, is the Lord speaking there, but I'll be honest with you. I don't usually keep those. Uh, you know, I, I take them seriously, but I don't usually hold on to them, because they're not necessarily something I want to look back on years down the road, I do get sometimes cards of affirmation and encouragement and love and and positive thoughts, and and I'll tell you, I keep every one of them. And it's not a vanity thing. It's not because I want to to puff myself up, but because those are life-giving. And there are times in my life I need to go back and read those because life can be tough. I remember those both make a difference, both have an impact but there's one that I cherish and one that I have to process. That's that's true for each of us. That's true for all of us. We need those voices, but even more important, we need to be them. We need to be them. You know, it's interesting, and this is an exercise that's been done in a lot of places. Philip Yancey writes about it in in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He talks about painting a, a, a picture of the kind of people that were attracted to Jesus. And You think about this. If you go through the Gospels and you start to write down who are the kind of people that came to Jesus? They were the afflicted. They were the sick. They were the outcasts. They were the marginalized. They were the tax collectors. They were the prostitutes. They were the peripheral of good society, if we want to use that term. And they came to Jesus in droves. And we would say, well, maybe it's because of the miracles he did. Well, That certainly had an impact. Maybe it was because of the power of his teaching, and I'm certainly sure that had an impact. But maybe, equally if not more important, was the life-giving nature of his words. The things that sometimes slip under the radar. For instance, in Luke chapter 8, there's a story that as Jesus is teaching, a woman comes and kind of hangs on the periphery of the crowd. A woman who had been bleeding and hemorrhaging for 12 years. A woman who by the standards and by the laws of of cleanliness of the day would have been an outcast. When a woman was bleeding in any kind of way, she was unclean. And so for 12 years, the woman had been unclean. For 12 years, she'd been pushed to the margin. For 12 years, she'd been told that she was under some sort of righteous judgment of God. For 12 years, she'd been shunned. And she's desperate for healing. And if you know the story, you know she didn't even want Jesus to know she was there because she was scared to death that he'd be like everybody else if he saw her. Don't touch me. Get away. You're unclean. And so she sneaks up to Jesus. If you know the story, she grabs his cloak, and it says in an instant she's healed, and Jesus feels the healing go out of him. And in what must have been a terrifying moment for her, he says, who has touched me? And she owns it. And in a moment, she is healed. And we might be tempted to say that is the most powerful moment of the story is when she is physically made well, but I think that's the, most second, that's the second most powerful moment of the story. Here, I believe, is the most powerful moment of the story. When he looked at her and he saw her faith, he said this, Daughter, your faith has made you well. He called her daughter. The only place in the entire Gospels he called anybody Daughter. Now, we can talk about the physical healing she got, but I'm telling you in a moment, Jesus' words were life-giving because he called her a term of affection. He reminded her she mattered. She made a difference. He reminded her that she had a place in the community. She was not outcast. She was not under judgment. She was loved, and she was important. Life-giving words, a spring of life. Jesus does that over and over, and it's embedded into the stories. The woman caught in adultery who is a setup, And he says, you know, when he calls him out, he says, okay, stone her. But whoever's without sin, throw the first one. And remember, they all left. And he looks at her and he says, who condemns you? And she says, nobody, Lord. They've left. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. A mob wants to kill her. And all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, I'm not condemning you. Words of life. Zacchaeus and a tax collector, and a traitor to his people, and somebody nobody wanted anything to do with, climbs up a tree just to get a look at Jesus, because certainly Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with him either. And once he said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm having dinner at your house tonight. He invites himself over. I should try that sometimes. <laughs> I'm having dinner at your house. Life-giving words. Life-giving words. Friends, we need to be mindful of what we say. We need... To bite our tongue at times. You know, we need to remember that, you know, there's two sayings we learn as children. One is, or there's a lot of sayings, but two for today. One is, you know, those things we learn in kindergarten if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's true. That's true. There's times we need to bite our tongue because there's that other saying that says, um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Yeah, that's a lie. It's a lie. In fact, I'd say our bones and our wounds heal a lot faster than the, the scars of the words. There are times we need to bite our tongue, but there are times we need to speak. We need to clamp the salt water and let the spring flow, because that's what Jesus speaks into us, and we need to be intentional about doing that for others. You have a chance, in your words, to change destinies. You know that? You may not know it. You may not see it. But you have a chance to change the course of somebody's life like a little boy who said that in a moment with his mother's encouragement and her kiss, he became an artist. Our words matter. Our words matter. Jesus' words matter. And he speaks them into us. You matter. You make a difference. I love you. You're gifted. You're unique. You're talented. You're worthy. Receive them. Hear them. But, oh, friends, speak them. Speak them. Share them. Let others be attracted to us because we look like Jesus. We act like Jesus. Let the broken come because we're broken and God speaks his value to us. Let's be that spring of life for others. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hear, to hear your words of love and affirmation. Lord, help us to speak them, to share them with others to be a spring of life, as you've called us. We pray in Christ. Amen.